Well, before we open God's Word this morning, I want to uh, re-emphasize something. We will continue to re-emphasize this to you, and that is the membership class coming uh, on July 13 and July 20. Now, the clipboards went through the congregation, and I happened to be seated in the back, and I didn't see an awful lot of names there's still time to sign up. You can sign up this week. You can call the church office uh, anytime over the next couple of weeks. But I want to encourage not only those who are considering membership to come, but if you've been a member of Christ Fellowship for 5, 10, 20, 30, 40 years, I want to invite you to come as well. I think uh, a couple of things will happen if you do um, just that. You'll meet some new people. You'll meet some people that you perhaps have never met before. You may learn some things about the church. You may learn some things about the strategic plan that has been established and we're moving forward now. Um, I've heard some feedback about where are the ministry action teams? When are we going to start? We are officially in motion. And so we are truly excited about the future of the church. One of the, the big important components will be getting this membership class up and running, and then we will uh, conduct those periodically as more people come into the church family. So please sign up. It's going to be a great time together. I want to have you uh, turn with me this morning to John chapter 10. And while you're doing that, would ask that you would be in prayer for me this week. Something happened on Friday, as most of you are well aware, um, probably one of the most dramatic and important decisions was handed down at the Supreme Court level. And so I will be addressing that subject next Sunday. Here's what happened. Last Wednesday, I believe it was, I sent Jason, our worship director, a what I call the sermon matrix. And what the sermon matrix is, Jason and I are the only ones that refer to it as such. But what it is, it's uh, looking forward into the future. And so we have sermons planned through the month of March 2016. And the Supreme Court screwed everything up. <laughs> so Jason, I'll be sending you a new one sometime next week. But all seriousness, um, th this is a very, very critical issue that we need to address. I think local churches all over America will be addressing it either today or next week or in the next several weeks. And I would greatly appreciate your prayer as we address it together. Would you look at John chapter 10 with me and stand to your feet as we read beginning in verse 1. The title of the message this morning is The Good Shepherd. And the Word of God says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him. For they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. 
the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again." No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Now, there is a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon, and he is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of the one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Please be seated. Now, Jesus, as you are well aware, as we have studied the Gospel of John, has been at the center of uh, many controversial situations, especially in his interaction with the men we know as the Pharisees. In John chapter 5, Jesus performed a miracle on the Sabbath. Jesus called God his Father, which made him equal with the living God. Jesus claimed to have the divine prerogative to forgive sins. He claimed to have the divine prerogative to also exercise judgment. Jesus Christ fed the 5,000. He walked on water. He referred to himself as the bread of life. He also claimed this unique uh, title for himself. He said, I am the light of the world. If that wasn't controversial enough, he claimed to have existence from all eternity. That is to say, Jesus is infinite. He is eternal. Moreover, Jesus Christ healed the blind man. And what made it especially significant and controversial, as you remember, is he healed that blind man on the Sabbath. And now as we approach John chapter 10, Jesus continues to make some claims that perplex the Pharisees. His words were so controversial that a division arose among the Jews. If you look in John chapter 10, at the very end of our passage, you see the word division emerging in verse 19. Now, John the Apostle says this about Jesus and his interaction with the Pharisees. Now, there was a division among the Jews. Now, the word division that John uses there is a word that most of us are familiar with. It comes from a Greek word, schisma. Schisma. We all know what that Greek word is rendered as in the English language. It's schism. And schism is also translated as division. And so you see in John chapter 10, John the Apostle is very tuned in. He's very keyed in to the conversation that Jesus is having with the Pharisees. And he says, it was so controversial that now the Pharisees are split. There's a division among them. The word literally means this. Now they're divided. There's a schism. 
there's a schism among the Pharisees. And here's what they say. Many of them accuses Jesus of being possessed by a demon. They actually charge him, if you can believe it, with being insane. The Greek word that John uses here means that this person is out of his mind. They essentially, this group of Pharisees, they accuse Jesus of being nuts. They say, this guy is crazy. Now, the other group in the schism, they're not quite as sure. They're not accusing him of being crazy, but they say this, verse 21, these are not the words of a one who is oppressed by a demon. And then they ask this very important question. Can a demon open the eyes of a person who is blind? I would submit this to you today, that many in our culture continue to level accusations against the Lord Jesus Christ. Some will accuse Jesus of being a liar. Others will accuse Jesus Christ of being a lunatic. There are some throughout church history who say, we affirm the deity of Christ, but we deny the humanity of Christ. Still others will say, we affirm the humanity of Christ, but we deny the deity of Christ. You know that some world religions, most notably Islam, will affirm that Jesus Christ is a prophet from God. A very, very important teacher. But if you press the Muslim into the corner and it doesn't take too many words, you will quickly find out that every Muslim denies that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. I think what we'll find in our culture is that most people are far less direct, though. While stopping short of charging Jesus with blasphemy, most people I have learned, especially in interactions at Starbucks in the woods, simply prefer to sit by idly. They are unwilling to weigh in on one side or the other unless, unless they have a Facebook account. Have you ever noticed that? It is absolutely stunning to me what people will say online, but they would never come and say it to your face. People will level all manner of accusations against Jesus Christ online. And every time I see it, I want to say, you stand in front of the Lord of the universe and say that to him. And so we have to be careful in our approach to Jesus Christ. But this morning, I want to boil down the big message that Jesus summarizes in this particular text. And I want to see if we can uh, put our heads together, if you will, and make some sense of the brouhaha that has taken place between Jesus and the Pharisees who are split right down the middle. I believe that in John chapter 10, Jesus wants to burn a message into the hearts and the minds of anyone who will listen. Let me summarize it really quick. In verses 1 to 6, what is happening is this. He uses a figure of speech that John the Apostle freely admits people just don't get it. So Jesus is using these examples. And we get to the end of verse 6, and John the Apostle says, they just didn't get it. And so what happens at this point is, in verses 7 through the end of the unit of thought, Jesus adjusts his strategy. He adjusts his figure of speech 
which is designed to, in so many words, stop them dead in their tracks. He wants to arrest their hearts. He wants to arrest their minds. He wants them to fixate their attention on him. That is my goal today as well. That each person, every boy, every girl, every man, every woman, would fixate their attention on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. May you be stopped dead in your tracks this morning as we examine this passage of Scripture. And my prayer for you is that you would marvel at Jesus Christ and all that he has accomplished on the cross. My prayer would be this, that your heart and your mind would echo the great hymn that was written a long time ago. And it goes something like this, I stand amazed in the presence of of Jesus the Nazarene. And I wonder, how in the world, I'm editorializing, could he love you? How in the world could he love me, a sinner condemned unclean? How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. This morning, I want to give you the truth point in advance and uh, work through it together. And it goes something like this. If we summarize chapter 10, verses 1 through 21, the truth point is that the good shepherd loves the sheep. The good shepherd loves the sheep. Now, many of us, in fact, I would argue most of us, grew up in Sunday school, and we all became accustomed to singing a song. I've thought a little bit about this, and I, I don't want to be the, the wise guy who is off-key. So would you sing this song with me? It goes something like this. Jesus loves me, this I know. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. I would submit this to you. If you're like me, not one time did it ever occur to you as a seven-year-old or a nine-year-old or an 11-year-old, at the end of that song, to raise your hand and ask your teacher, Teacher, why would you love me? Are you kidding me? Why would Jesus Christ... The one who is fully God and fully man. The one who has existed from all eternity. The one who healed the blind man. The one who walked on the water. The one who is all-powerful, all-knowing, and is everywhere at the same time. That is to say, he is omnipresent. Why would he love Bill? Why would he love Jason? 
Why would he love Tom and Laura? Why would he love Ivan? Why would he love me? But my fear is we take the love of the Lord Jesus Christ for granted. And I think the reason is very simple. We feel like deep down, most of us would never admit this, but we feel like I'm something. That's what we've learned in our culture. Be your best and try your hardest and you can do whatever you put your mind to and you're really something, right? Therefore, Jesus, he, he owes it to me. And one of the things that is striking about this passage is he doesn't owe you anything. Yet he chooses to love his sheep. It's an astounding reality. And so this morning, I want to invite you together to, once again, to marvel at the depth and the weightiness that the Good Shepherd has for the sheep. I want you to see how how massive and mighty His grace is. Don't take anything for granted. Don't assume anything. Rather, begin at square one and say, Lord Jesus, would you show me how massive your love is? is for me. So that when I sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, I'm not twiddling my thumbs and going through the motions and saying, I can't believe the pastor's making us sing this together. It's a song for three-year-olds. It's a song for the nations. Because Jesus loves a sinner like me. As we examine the amazing, massive, and mighty grace and love of Jesus I would turn your attention to one of my favorite songwriters. This man is a pastor. His name is Bob Coughlin. And he says it this way, Grace unmeasured, vast and free, that knew me from eternity, that called me out before my birth to bring you glory on this earth. I want you to see this morning that any attempt... Any attempt to minimize the sovereignty of the Good Shepherd is treasonous. And I want to get in your craw just a little bit this morning. I'm not talking about the Supreme Court. I'm talking about people in the pews, the dozens and dozens and dozens of people that I've talked to over the last 25 years who minimize the sovereignty of the Good Shepherd. Such a move is theologically fatal, deadly, treasonous. I want you to see that any attempt to marginalize the sovereign grace of this Good Shepherd does harm to the gospel and renders him weak and ineffectual. That mutilating the the doctrines of grace are tantamount to mutilate, mutilating the love that he has for the people of God. I don't want to assume anything this morning. So before we examine the good shepherd's love for the sheep, we need to get our bearings straight. Hopefully you've heard it loud and clear as we begin at, at, at ground zero, if you will, that Jesus Christ is the good shepherd. That much is true. But remember this as well. Not only is Jesus Christ the good shepherd, we, if we are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are his sheep. Once again, when I speak of sheep, I mean disciples, 
Christians, Christ followers, God followers, those who are walking in step with the Lord Jesus Christ. But there's something else I want you to remember about these sheep. The sheep that you'll see all around the county, they're not the smartest animal in the world, right? Morgan, I think you... Morgan is smiling. Morgan knows sheep. They're just not... I've never met a sheep with a PhD. A a sheep is just... just, Can I be honest? Sheep are not the sharpest tool in the shed, right? There's just one brick short of a load. An author who actually was a shepherd for most of his adult life says this about the sheep. He says, sheep are notorious creatures of habit. If left to themselves, they will follow the same trails until they become ruts, graze the same hills until they turn to desert wasteland, pollute their own ground until it is corrupt with disease and parasites. Why? Because they're not very smart. The Bible says this about sheep. In Psalm 119, the psalmist says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Jeremiah 56 says, My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray, turning them away from the mountains. They have forgotten their fold. Zechariah chapter 10 verse 2 says this, Therefore the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. And then, of course, we all know Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on us the iniquity, or the Lord has laid on him, rather, the iniquity of us all. Simply put, sheep are self-willed and stubborn. Sheep are a stiff-necked lot. The same shepherd that I cited earlier said this, the stubborn, self-willed, proud, self-sufficient sheep, that's a mouthful, that persists in pursuing its old paths and grazing on its old polluted ground will end up in a bag of bones on ruined land. It is very important as we move forward into this text this morning to, to affirm and to recognize what each sheep brings to the table. That is to say, what is it that a sheep contributes? Many of the men were at a retreat a few months ago. I can see it in the looks of some of you. You already know where I'm going with this. One of the songs that we were forced to sing, that none of us sang, I would add, went something like this. I offer up my righteousness to you, God. I was so proud of the men at Christ Fellowship because we were all thinking the same thing. I'm sure the song rhymes. I'm sure the song sounds good. I'm sure that it fits with all the other words. But here is what we as sheep have to offer God. It's really simple. Nothing! Right? We offer nothing to God. Why? Because sheep, by definition, are sinful and self-centered and stubborn. We have gone astray. We do our own things. We have turned aside from the living God. The only good 
The only thing virtuous that comes from a sheep has been wrought out by the Lord Jesus Christ. For I have been crucified with Christ. It is not me that lives, but Christ that lives within me. So anything good that I do, anything good that you do, our response is, thank you, Jesus. Because I don't have anything to offer. It's Jesus who does it through me. So it is precisely in this context where we come face to face with the good shepherd who loves the sheep. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for sending Jesus to be our good shepherd. And thank you, Jesus, for uh, the words in this short passage. Thank you for emphasizing again and again how much you love the sheep. May we as the people of God, may we as the sheep be reminded afresh this morning how much you love us. May we start from ground zero. May we take nothing for granted. May we be even shocked and astounded and mesmerized by the great love that you have for us. For it's in your worthy name we pray. Amen. Well, here's the truth point. Once again, the good shepherd loves the sheep. And a shepherd's task, as you're well aware, is to lead, feed, and protect the flock. The shepherd, therefore, has the best interests of the sheep in mind. Shepherds sacrifice for the sheep. Shepherds lead the sheep in the right direction. Shepherds feed the sheep the right kind of food for maximum health benefits. Shepherds protect those sheep from the wolves or anything else that might pose a threat to their safety. So just as a shepherd cares for and nurtures the sheep, so too does the Lord Jesus Christ love his people, his sheep. But I want you to see that we're not talking about just any run-of-the-mill shepherd. I want you to see in this passage that two times Jesus refers to himself in verses 11 and 14. He refers to himself as the good shepherd. The good shepherd. And the word good comes from a little Greek term that means much more than merely good. Right? You go to a a restaurant. Nathan and I, we went to uh, McDonald's. There's Nathan. We went to McDonald's the other day. And and I I had the new sirloin burger. I was always under the impression that I'd been eating sirloin for the last 40 years. No, no, it was the other kind of meat. So I tried the new sirloin burger with peppercorn sauce. Would someone like to ask me how it was? It was good. It was good. It was tasty. We use the word good. We apply it to everything. It was a good movie. It was a good song. It was a good class. It was a good sermon, you know. We, we apply good to just about everything. That's not what the word means here. The word good in the original Greek means that it has good moral character or value. But more than that, it means that someone is providing a superior benefit. It means that someone is beautiful or attractive in form. It points, most importantly, to a person who is exalted in high status. It makes me wonder why Jesus didn't say, I'm the... Great shepherd. I would like you to think in those terms. That Jesus not only is the great shepherd, he's the, he's the greatest shepherd. He is the majestic shepherd. 
And so it will serve us well to remember this morning that Jesus qualifies his identity as the good shepherd. Now, the great writer C.S. Lewis understood the implication and the importance of this term good, which once again describes this shepherd. In his book that I know many of you have read, in the Chronicles of Narnia, the first book, and in my estimation, the best one, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Mr. Beaver if you remember Mr. Beaver, is describing the lion to Susan. Now, Susan has not yet met the lion. And Susan says this, is, is he a man? Mr. Beaver says sternly, Aslan, a man? Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Susan's response is classic. Oh, I thought he was a man. Susan asks, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mr. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most of us or just plain silly. Safe, said the beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. He is the king, I tell you. I am afraid to admit that many of us, myself included, become so zealous about proclaiming a God who is altogether majestic and holy and sovereign. And of course he is. And of course we must continue to proclaim those attributes of God. But sometimes in our zeal to proclaim this this sovereign, majestic, omnipotent God, sometimes I think we just plain forget to emphasize to our friends and family and our neighbors that God is good. Wouldn't you agree? Our God is a good God. The scriptures bear this out. Psalm chapter 25 says, Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. Psalm 34 says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 86, 5, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. I remember when I was about eight years old, I memorized Psalm chapter 100. It's kind of cool, right? Because you can tell your friends and family, you memorize a whole chapter of Scripture. Five verses. Verse 5. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and His faithfulness endures to all generations. Psalm 107.1. I'll give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Time and time again, we we see that the scripture tells us that God is good. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made, Psalm 145, 9. And so with a better understanding of who we are as the sheep and who Jesus is as the good shepherd, would you take the remaining minutes with me and notice six ways in this passage that the good shepherd loves his sheep. 
And just to give you advance warning, we're going to take likely the most time on the first one and then kind of skim the rest of them, not to, not to suggest that the others are less important. I just want to call your attention especially to the first way that Jesus loves his sheep. It emerges in verse 3. In verse 3, Jesus says, To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls out his own sheep by name and leads them out. The first thing I want you to see about Jesus' love for his sheep is that he calls the sheep. Jesus calls the sheep. I want you to see several things about this particular point. First, I want you to see that he calls the sheep by name. And understand the weightiness, the gravity of that reality, that he calls you by name. When my brother and I were growing up, we loved to play outside. We did things like play football, play basketball. One time, I think I've shared with you, we, we did our best to dig a hole to China. We made it about two feet. I'm pretty sure we could have made it if we had more time. But we used to love to play outside like, like little boys do. Well, we grew very accustomed to hearing a voice. And the voice went something like this, and it usually rang out through the neighborhood about 5 or 5.15. and went something like this. Davy, Danny, it's dinner time. We'd make our way home. And here's the point of that story is the neighbors didn't come running with us. My friends who we loved didn't come running home with us because the call was specifically directed at me and my brother. Here we see that Jesus calls his sheep by name, much like my mother called my brother and me by name. That word call in verse 3 comes from the word that means a divine summons. When Jesus calls his sheep, it's as if he says, Kirk, come into the fold. Travis, Come into the fold. He calls you by name. He knows you by name and brings you into the fold. This is a divine summons. The great Puritan Thomas Watson put it this way. God rides forth conquering the chariot of his gospel. He conquers the pride of the heart and makes the will which stood out as a royal fort. To yield and stoop to his grace, he makes the stony heart bleed. Oh, it is a mighty call. Do you know that a quote like this is completely foreign to many Christians in our culture? Because we are raised thinking that we have the final say. Where Watson, in keeping with the apostles and the teaching of Jesus, says, This is a mighty call. It is an effectual call. It's what theologians refer to as the efficacious call or the effectual call. God's word puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 1.9. God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the way many people teach these passages these days is this. God extends an invitation, and then God kind of sits off in the, in the sidelines waiting to see if those whom he called will come. He's hoping. He's scratching his head. He hopes that they'll come. But the scriptures tell us this. All those for whom Jesus calls will 
most certainly come. It is an effectual call. Paul says in 2 Timothy that God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus when? Before the ages began. I want you to see that this call is an absolutely irresistible call. Watson says, the effectual call is mighty and powerful. God puts forth a divine energy, a kind of omnipotence. It is such a powerful call that the will of man has no power effectually to resist. In short, when Jesus calls his sheep, he calls them by name. Notice second, however, That each sheep is given as a love gift from the Father to the Son. If you would turn back to John 6, verse 37. John 6, 37. We have seen this illustrated. And my guess is about this time as you turn to John 6, many of you are very hot and wondering, when is this going to end? Try standing up here. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me, Jesus says will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now notice the flow of biblical logic. The flow of biblical logic goes something like this. All that the Father gives to the Son will most certainly come to the Son. And whoever comes to the Son, he will never cast out. Now our our Arminian brothers and sisters put it like this. They say that, God will never let go of you, but because you have been given the gift of free will, you can leave Jesus any time you want. I would submit to you that that is a false importing of a theological framework to even this verse. Look at again, verse 37. Jesus says it very, very plainly. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. You see, the effectual call guarantees a positive response of faith from every sheep. Look at verse 16 of John chapter 10, moving forward. Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. That is to say, there are some who Jesus considers sheep who are still outside the family of God. They have not believed yet. And he says, I must bring them also. They might listen to my voice. How many of you are reading carefully? Jesus doesn't say they might listen to my voice or I hope they'll listen to my voice. He says they will listen to my voice. And so the effectual call guarantees a response from every sheep. I also want you to see that the sheep belong to Jesus. That is to say the sheep are his possession. They are not only given as a love gift from the Father to the Son in eternity past, but now the sheep become the very possession of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter the Apostle recognized this. He said in 1 Peter 2 verse 9, But you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, I warned you that point number one would be the longest point, and we're almost done. But I want to provide a few lessons for the sheep. 
some takeaways, if you will. Recognize because Jesus calls the sheep that every sheep has unique value before God. Each sheep has unique worth before God. The sheep are loved by the shepherd. And when were we loved? We were loved in eternity past. We were loved before the creation of the cosmos, before the creation of the world, before the creation of the planets. And that should make you come to the place where you can acknowledge that you truly are special and of great worth in the eyes of a holy God. The great pastor, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, said it this way. He said, I am sure it is true in my case. I believe in the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason to myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. Yet he does. Are you sensing the, the, the weightiness, the massive reality of the love that the good shepherd has for you? There's another way that the good shepherd loves his sheep. It's also found in verse 3, and that is that he leads the sheep. He leads the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name. And what does he do? He leads them out. The word lead just simply means to, to lead out, to, to bring along. But I began to ask the question, where does the, sheep, where does the shepherd take the sheep? And instantly, I hope you're doing it with me, my heart was drawn to Psalm chapter 23 where we learn about the good shepherd and we recognize that the sheep are led by the shepherd to the still waters. Psalm 23, 2 says that the good shepherd leads the sheep to the green pastures. He leads the sheep in paths of righteousness. Why? We talk a lot at Christ Fellowship about the God-centeredness of God. The reason he leads us to paths of righteousness is for his name's sake. He doesn't do it ultimately for us. He does it for him. And then we get the benefit of that. We reap the benefit of his leadership. And so he leads the sheep into the fold of God, like we have seen in verse 16. Moreover, the good shepherd recognized this, that he leads the sheep exclusively and as a result, he will not tolerate any rivals. We live in a culture where the good shepherd has rivals at every juncture. Drain and I were talking about this a few days ago on the way back from Seattle, where Drain cited Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter this gate... They are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. I think that accurately describes the situation that we find ourselves in now. Suffice it to say, Jesus leads the sheep. Notice a few lessons for the flock. Jesus is not only the exclusive Savior, He also makes exclusive demands. 
The path he leads us on is a path of lordship. And the path of lordship requires obedience. You say, I thought we come to faith in Christ simply. I thought we believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and we are saved. Absolutely. We come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ by grace alone, through faith alone. However, when we come to the place where we're following Jesus and we recognize that we are sheep, Jesus says, true disciples obey. We do not obey to get in. We, be, we obey because we have been justified by grace alone, through faith alone. I would submit to you that the days ahead for the sheep may prove incredibly difficult. And I think the days just got more difficult as of the decision that was rendered on Friday. But as Christ followers, as the sheep of God, we will keep in step, will we not, with our good shepherd. We will trust that his way is the best way. We will affirm that it may involve pain, it may involve persecution, it may even involve martyrdom. But we will trust our good shepherd as he leads us in paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. Notice the third way that Jesus loves the sheep. Verse 9 tells us that he saves the sheep. He saves the sheep. He says in verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. That word saved simply means to rescue. It means to deliver. And there is some confusion, I believe, even in the church as to what we are delivered from. Or should I say, whom we are delivered from. Romans chapter 5 says it this way. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much, much more shall we be saved by him, that is Jesus, from the wrath of God. A brief lesson for the flock is this, and it emerges through the back door, if you will, and that is that sheep, by definition, need to be rescued. Sheep, by definition, are sinners. Therefore, sheep need to turn to the Savior to have all their sins forgiven. I want you to see the fourth thing that emerges, the fourth way that the sheep loves, or the shepherd loves the sheep. It occurs in verse 10. I remember when I was a small boy memorizing this verse, still echoes in my mind to this day. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And Jesus throws in a contrast here. But I have come so that they may have life and life to the full, or life more abundantly. Notice, Jesus describes a life that's not just any kind of life. It is, what kind of life? It's abundant life. What does that mean? It means to, to receive something in excess. It means to receive something that is overflowing. It means that uh, abundance is there's more than just water that goes up to the top. It means there's water coming out the top. That's the kind of life that the Lord Jesus Christ has given to the sheep. Our call then is to be satisfied with all that God is for us in Christ. Why? He has given us abundant life 
super abundant life, overflowing life. And so the question for the flock today is this. Are you satisfied with all that God is for you in Christ? Or are you drinking, as Jeremiah referred to, the polluted streams of our culture? And again, there's so many things that compete for our allegiance in this age and in this generation. I remember I went on a hike in the Olympic Mountains several years ago. And my buddy told me, it's only a three-mile hike. And I thought to myself, I'm in pretty good shape to begin with. A three-mile hike, bring it on. So I went to the store, and I bought all the good stuff. I remember specifically buying big cans of chili, because I, I just love chili, especially when you're hiking. It just tastes so good. Anyone with me? And we got to the top, and my friend Ross said, what's with the chili? And this is the reason he asked, what's with the chili? I was so tired by the time we got to the top. I said, we weren't at the top yet. I said, I I can't go any further. Did I remind you it was straight up? Yeah, three miles. Yeah, thanks for telling me it's straight up. So I get about two-thirds of the way. I can't go anymore. My legs are spasm. They're just just shaking. I mean, I'm red as a beet. I say, I can't go any further. And Ross says, you stay here. I'll take your pack to camp. Yeah. First thing I thought is he's going to eat my chili when he gets there. (laughs) But he did open the pack. And when he came to get me, he said, what's with the chili? I said, I like chili, man. Give me a break. He's like, didn't you know we were climbing straight up? I said, no, you didn't tell me. On the way down, I was so thirsty. Kind of like right now. I was so thirsty, and I went to, to get a drink from the stream, and Ross said, up, 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 up. Don't, don't drink from that. I said, I'm really thirsty, man. He said, you can taste it now. It'll drink. It'll taste really good now. You will pay the price later this afternoon. So I'm faced on the horns of a dilemma. Do I wait until we get to the bottom of this horrible hill that I'll never go on again? Or do I taste and enjoy from this cool fountain. I chose to wait. And I'm certainly glad I chose to wait because I know I would have been sicker than a dog. Isn't that what we do, however, in the Christian life? We're thirsty for whatever it might be. We're thirsty for friends. We're thirsty for sex. We're thirsty for materialism. Whatever it might be, we drink from the polluted streams. And God says, if you drink from the streams that are polluted... You will pay a price for the book of Galatians tells us that we will reap whatever we sow. We will reap whatever we sow. Number five, I want you to see something that emerges in verse 14. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. That is to say, Jesus loves the sheep in this way. He knows the sheep. He knows the sheep. The word knows comes from a word that means intimate knowledge. And because Jesus has an intimate knowledge of his sheep, we as the sheep should turn around and have a desire to know him. And that's exactly what the verse says. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Finally, number six, I want you to see that Jesus gives his life for the sheep. Verse 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 15, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the Father. 
Acts chapter 20, verse 28 says, pay, pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church, church of God. That is the responsibility of elders, which he obtained with his own blood. Who does the sheep die for? He dies for the sins of everyone who would ever believe, which he obtained with his own blood. You remember the truth point. That the good shepherd, who is Jesus Christ, loves the sheep. He calls the sheep. He leads the sheep. He saves the sheep. He gives life to them. He knows them intimately. And he lays down his life for the sheep. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. Jesus loved his people before the foundation of the world, even from eternity. And when he called me by his grace, he said to me, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Then in the fullness of time, he purchased me with his blood. So we close this morning. Here is the big question. The big question is, if we know a good shepherd who calls us and loves us and leads us and feeds us and nurtures us and knows us, why would we want anything else? Why would we even be drawn to the filthy, bug-infested stream? If Jesus Christ is the good shepherd for his people, why would we be drawn to anything else? My challenge to men and women is this. In an age when 60, 70, and sometimes 80% of men and women are looking at pornography to make this commitment today. That's a filthy stream. I'll never do it again. You say, whoa. Like my wife and I heard on the radio the other day, it, it takes a long time to develop habits. And there, There's a word for that. That's humanism. It takes a long time to get to... No, we can decide today that I will be satisfied with all that God is for me in Christ. Yes, we will be tempted. Yes, we will see things that we may desire in the short term, but we make this choice as we draw the line in the sand. I will be satisfied with the good shepherd because Jesus is the good shepherd who loves his sheep. I want to close by giving you four very brief challenges. And the challenges go like this. Number one, would you learn to recognize the voice of the good shepherd? Learn to recognize the voice of the good shepherd. I remember when I was just a boy in the church that I grew up in. My dad told me this story. That a man had heard from the voice of God. He heard from the shepherd. The good shepherd. And the good shepherd told him to leave his wife. My dad taught me a very important lesson that day. The good shepherd would never give that kind of advice. Learn to listen to the voice of the good shepherd. Jesus said in verse 4, When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. The voices compete for your attention every day in our culture. You hear voices in the media. You hear voices in the classroom. Voices come from friends. 
we need to grow accustomed to understanding and recognizing the voice of the Good Shepherd. Number two, let me challenge you to actually listen to his voice. It's one thing to recognize his voice. It's another thing altogether to listen to the voice. So the lamb who listens is the lamb who follows Jesus. The lamb who listens is the lamb who obeys the good shepherd. Number three, I would challenge you to follow the good shepherd. When the good shepherd says it's time to move, you move. When the good shepherd says it's time to stay and endure a season of adversity, you stay. But you follow the good shepherd and his leading and you trust that he knows best. Finally, and very practically, I would encourage us as a church family to get to know the good shepherd. And how do you do that? How do you do that? You spend time in the word of God. You spend time with the people of God who know the good shepherd perhaps better than you have. They've been walking with the good shepherd for years and years. So you spend time in the word. You spend time under uh, good teaching and preaching in your local church. You spend time in prayer with the good shepherd. This morning, I, I trust that as we look at these words in John 10, that you would be blown away by the love that the shepherd has for you. Would you see it every day? Would you savor it every day? Would you never grow tired of the massive love that the shepherd has for you? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you once again for Jesus, the good shepherd. God, it is a a hot day. It's hard to uh, pay attention. It's hard to keep our, our thinking straight, but we want to just take a moment and zero in for these remaining moments and and just be amazed we want to stand amazed in the presence of jesus the nazarene as we close in song i pray that you would draw our hearts in worship that this would be a watershed moment when we would remember the day when we were struck with the awesome love that the good shepherd has for his sheep thank you so much for this great love today amen I want to have you be seated just for a moment and invite.